Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll read verses 1 to 8 today. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, grateful for your many blessings. Lord, the many privileges that you bestow Lord, upon your church, the things that you are doing in the midst of your people. Lord, knowing that even now the Holy Spirit is among us, present with us, and that in a very real sense we are all today partaking of the Holy Spirit. We are tasting the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. Lord, we have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Lord, we pray that these blessings... Lord, that they would be used by us for our benefit and, Lord, not for our ruin and destruction. Lord, that they might tend to our salvation and not to our damnation. So, Lord, may you give to us ready and willing ears today. Lord, hearts that are quick to obey. Lord, feet that are quick to go and to do your will. Lord, may we not be dull of hearing, but rather be diligent to hear the word and then do what it says. So, Lord, may you bless your work among us today in your word. And, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working in an effectual way among us today. Lord, for our salvation, for our sanctification, for the building up of the body of Christ. And it is in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this passage where the apostle is giving one of the most severe warnings in all of the Bible about the danger of falling away. This would be the danger of apostasy. And it is important for us to remember that the apostle does not think that this description of apostasy is true of the Hebrew Christians, right? We remember in Hebrews 6 verse 9, after he describes this sin, he says of them, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in such a way. So he is not talking about them, but he is talking about those about others who at one time made a profession of faith in Christ. At one time were baptized into the church. At one time they were counted among the brethren. At one time they experienced many of the advantages and privileges of the new covenant that are seen and experienced there amongst the believers. He's describing here false temporary converts. Those who outwardly appear to be among us, to 
be disciples of Christ, who even associate with the church and the things of God, but they only do so temporarily for a short period of time. Eventually, they reveal that their faith is a dead faith, that their so-called conversion is exactly that. It is so-called because it does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we began to see these descriptions by which he enumerates the privileges of these apostates when they were there amongst the body of Christ. They were said to be those who have once been enlightened. They heard the gospel. They even had some positive response to the gospel. They had come to some form of enlightenment, and at least momentarily they believed that salvation was found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They believed momentarily that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. So this enlightenment is more than just hearing the word of God. Right, That is a type of enlightenment, but this enlightenment is like that seed that was sown among the rocky soil, who hears the word of God and receives it with joy, but has no root in itself, and eventually it is choked out and it falls away because of the cares of this present world. This is what was true of them in terms of their enlightenment. Also, it was said that they tasted of the heavenly gift, the heavenly gift being the Spirit of God the one sent from heaven, to usher in the many blessings of the new covenant. His power, his presence, his gifts are present in the church of Jesus Christ. And when these apostates join the ranks of the Christians, they in a very real sense tasted of the heavenly gift. They experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, the purity and the spirituality of the worship, the freedom of the people from sin, the holiness there in the body of Christ. We remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says of them that they escaped the entanglements of sin, the defilements of this world. They had a taste of these blessings. Initially, that taste was sweet to their mouth, but eventually they forsook the new sweet bread of the gospel for the old stale bread of Judaism and worldliness. And it would be good for us to remember as we begin again our exposition of this passage, that 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, is a parallel passage to what he's describing here. 1 John 2, verses 18 to 24, describes these people. It says there, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, and the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. There, clearly, these people who went out from them were never really of them. Never really truly, spiritually, inwardly, were they true partakers of Christ. Were they true converts, true believers, true children of God though they were temporarily in an outward sense. 
right? And this is what he's describing as well in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. So let's pick up Hebrews chapter 6. We'll read verses 4 and 5 again. There it says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Last week, we began this description of these people, these apostates, those who have fallen away. And we covered the first two of these descriptions last week, that they have once been enlightened and they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Today, we'll pick up on the third of these five descriptions. Here it says that they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Here, this description is placed in the middle. There are two that come before it, and there are two that come after it, and it is the defining feature of them and of all that they have experienced and of all the privileges and blessings. All of the blessings that they have been associated with are a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who enlightens us. He is the one that gives us a taste of heaven, of the good word of God, of the powers of the age to come. All of these blessings are a result of being made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And this is what they have partook of. And here this shows us that one may partake of the Holy Spirit in a sense, right? In a partial way. They may partake of his gifts, may partake of his influence, may partake of his blessings without partaking of the full blessing of the Spirit, of his grace and his power unto salvation. For clearly these people are not saved. These are not redeemed people and they never were redeemed people. They were never truly of us. Therefore, they did not fully partake of the Holy Spirit unto salvation. The Spirit never regenerated their dead hearts. The Spirit never produced true faith and repentance in them. The Spirit never indwelt them and inscribed the very law of God on their heart. However, here he says they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. So they were partakers in another sense, in the sense of a participation in the gifts of the Spirit that he distributes among men in the body of Christ. And one may participate in this way, and one may even exercise some of these gifts in an outward sense, even in the body of Christ, in their association with the things of God, but not in a true sense. John chapter 14, John 14 verses 16 to 17, here it speaks of the true partaking of the Holy Spirit, the partaking that leads to salvation. And in this partaking, the world does not know. And these reprobates, these apostates, they never knew this type of partaking of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be with you. Here, what Jesus is saying about the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit amongst the believer, this is only true of the true child of God, the truly regenerate man, that the world cannot receive the Spirit in this way. And these apostates did not receive the Spirit in this way. He did not abide in them. 
He did not regenerate them. He did not indwell them. He did not write the word of God, the law of God, on the heart of them. He does this only for the elect, only for the children of God. So here, this partaking of the Holy Spirit cannot mean the abiding that is described in John 14, verses 16 and 17, because they cannot participate, the world cannot, and clearly these people are of the world, they cannot participate and receive the Spirit in this way. However, one can partake of his spiritual gifts. A false convert who associates with Christ temporarily, who attaches himself to the church for a season. This unbeliever, this wolf in sheep's clothing, this goat, goat who is pretending and they're amongst the sheep, can benefit from the influence of the Holy Spirit and can even have a participation in the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he bestows upon men. Now, let's see some examples of this in the Bible. Numbers 24. Numbers 24. We have to ask here before we read this, Balaam. Is Balaam a true prophet or a false prophet? Is Balaam a true believer, a true child of God? Or is he a reprobate, an accursed man? Right? He's accursed. He's a false prophet from the very beginning. He never was a true believer. However, did Balaam prophesy truly? And what he said was true. And by whom did he prophesy what he prophesied? Numbers 24, verses 1 to 4. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Balaam, we know, is a false prophet from the testimony of the rest of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And when they went in and took and, and fought uh, amongst these people, who did Joshua and them put to death? They put Balaam to death because he was a false prophet. So he was an unbeliever, a false prophet, yet here he prophesies truly, and he prophesies truly by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon him. So in a sense, was he a partaker of the Holy Spirit, of his gift? Because no one can prophesy except by the Spirit of God, and he did that, but he was not a true believer. Another example, 1 Samuel chapter 10. King Saul. Was King Saul a true believer? who then became an unbeliever, had true salvation and then lost that salvation, was indwelt by the Spirit of God and then lost the Spirit of God. No, it cannot be. However, did the Spirit use Saul for a season and give him gifts and abilities to perform his function in his role? Yes, and in that sense, he was a partaker of the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel 10, 9-13. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave, Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. And when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? 
Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? There Saul prophesied by the Spirit of God. But we know from the rest of the account that Saul was never a believer, but he was a wicked man, right, who ended up being brought under the judgment and condemnation of God. Another example, Matthew. Two examples for Matthew. We'll start at Matthew 10 because this is a specific example, a personal example, and then Matthew 7, which is a general description. But this would apply in both cases. John 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the name of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Here, all 12 of them are given authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and sickness. And when they go out, they come back rejoicing that even the spirits are subject to them. And who was among them? Judas Iscariot. And how did Judas cast out demons? How did Judas heal people of diseases? By whose power? The power of the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, he partook of these gifts from the Holy Spirit, though was Judas ever a true believer? No, we know that he was always a son of the devil from the very beginning. Jesus knew that and said so in John chapter 6. He knew who was going to betray him and that he was never truly one of them. Yet he still had some experience, some partaking of the Holy Spirit, his influence upon him to perform miracles and to cast out demons and even to preach the gospel. And that God blessed the preaching of the gospel as it came from him and brought about conversions. Then Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here, this general description would be applicable to Balaam, to Saul, and to Judas. All of them either prophesied, healed, or cast out demons in the name of Christ. But did Christ ever know them? He never knew them. They were workers of lawlessness. But how did they prophesy? How did they cast out demons? How did they heal the sick? By whose power? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this sense, they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. It was by the power of the Spirit, by His gifts given to men, that they were able to do such things. And they experienced this firsthand, right? In their own person, the power of the Spirit displayed in these gifts. So it's not just that Balaam and Saul and Judas saw other people do these things. They themselves were doing these things and saw the power of the Spirit. Yet in all three cases, we're not dealing with true believers who lost their salvation, 
who had the grace of God, who were redeemed, who were children of God, and then fell back into a state of condemnation and became children of the devil. But rather, we're dealing with people who were temporarily among us, 1 John chapter 2, 19, but who ultimately went out from us because if they had been of us, what would they have done? They would have stayed with us. That is true of Judas Iscariot and of all of them, but they went out so that it would become plain and obvious to all that they are not all of us. And in this we see, and in the same way in Hebrews chapter 6, these that he is talking about here were in this sense, in the same way, made partakers of the Holy Spirit. One may partake of his power, of his gifts, without partaking of his grace and having his indwelling of his presence. Next, in Hebrews chapter 6, they're described as having tasted the good word of God, the word of God that was preached among them. And this word that they heard was not in a meager fashion. They were not given meager rations of the word of God, but they were taught the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ And who were their teachers? Who were the ones preaching among them? The apostles of Christ. They're the ones proclaiming the word of God to them. And even some of them may have been present in some of Jesus' sermons when he was preaching and teaching there amongst the children of Israel. They heard the word of God faithfully and truly proclaimed, and they tasted of its excellence, of the good word of God. Here it is called the good word of God because the word that they heard was not a dull word. It was not a dead word. It was not a boring word. It was not an unpleasant word. It is the good word of God for the preaching of the gospel teaches men how we can have the supreme blessing from the Lord, how we can have our sins forgiven through faith in Christ, how we can be reconciled to God, how we can be adopted into his family and have eternal life. This is the gospel that they heard, that was being taught to them. All of these wonderful truths of how they might have a state of ultimate, supreme blessedness and joy through the forgiveness of sins. In contrast to their former teachers, the scribes and Pharisees, who were not teaching them how to be blessed in the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, but rather we're teaching them to establish their own works righteousness, salvation by their own works. But here, the good word of God teaches us of a righteousness that does not come through keeping the law, not through our own works. That's what the Jews were teaching them. That's what Judaism was teaching them, to pursue righteousness by their own works. And is that a good word for men to hear? That you can be saved through your own law keeping, through your own obedience? No, of course not. Because one, it's either going to lead to blatant hypocrisy, right? Because who can convince themselves that his deeds are righteous enough to meet God's acceptance, God's approval? But no one. So it either leads to hypocrisy, and then on the day of judgment, they're going to be sorely surprised because they're going to find out that all their righteous deeds are filth in the sight of God, and they're going to be condemned, or it's going to lead to despair. To the one who is a sensible man, who has an understanding of the own depravity of his heart, he'll know that he can never do a good enough to please God. So they're going to be left into this state of despair. That's the word that was being proclaimed to them from their teachers, 
from the scribes and Pharisees. But now the apostles and the church are preaching to them the good word of God. That righteousness does not come by our law keeping, but rather it comes through faith in Christ. And this belief, this good word, does not leave men in despair and does not produce hypocrisy and pride in them, but rather it produces humility and gives us assurance. It gives us comfort and hope because we know that in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled to God, that we are brought into his family, and that we have the full forgiveness of sins and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the good word of God that was being taught to them to pursue righteousness by faith in Christ. As the Apostle Peter says in John 6, verse 68, he says, Lord, to whom should we go? You have words of eternal life. This is the word of the gospel, the word of the cross, right? It is words that teach men how they can have a sure confidence, a certain hope of eternal life with God. Even the gospel means good news. It is the good word of God. Just as it is written, how beautiful are those, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Romans 10, 15. And we remember in Luke 2, verses 10 to 11, there on the night that Jesus was born, the angel proclaimed to the shepherds, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the good word of God. And this they have heard. They have been enlightened. They have tasted of this good word of God, the word of reconciliation, the word of peace with God, the word of eternal life, the word of full forgiveness of sins, the word of free grace. And this word was initially sweet to them. They tasted it. It was good to them. They received it with joy. But now they're turning away from it. They're turning back to legalism, back to the law, back to their own works of righteousness, right? Back to a Judaism that is teaching them to trust in their own law keeping for their salvation. They experience for a moment the blessedness, the freedom, the liberty of the gospel state. Yet now they are placing again upon themselves a yoke that neither they nor their fathers have been able to bear. And this is a reminder and a warning to us. So long as the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed among us, we are hearing the good word of God. It is a good word. It is not a bitter word. It is not a poisonous word. It is not a dead word. It is not a word that will lead to our ruin, to our misery, to our destruction, but to our well-being, to our good, to our blessedness. Right? It is a joyful word that we hear from the Lord. How foolish would it be for us to reject the good word of God, to refuse him who speaks to us from heaven, who declares to us such a good and a gracious word. And yet, what do you find today in many churches and in much of Christianity? There are few people who want to hear a good word from God. They would rather have their ears tickled with vain philosophy, with the ideas, the philosophies of men, with new and novel ideas. 
and who will not tolerate to hear a good word from God. But for us to do this is to bring about our own ruin and destruction. Because it says in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Why would we want to drink from the broken sisters, cisterns of human wisdom, of human philosophy, when we can drink freely from the fountain of living water, which is the good word of God that teaches us how to be reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ. So we should not refuse the good word of God, but rather we should rejoice when it is among us and we should receive it with gladness and joy. Not temporarily, but continually through the course of our life. The fifth description. They have tasted the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come. This is the power of the Holy Spirit seen in the church. His gifts included miraculous gifts that evidenced His power. There, in the early days, the gifts of miracles, the gift of speaking in tongues, these miraculous powers gave testimony to the truthfulness, to the veracity of the message of the gospel, that God was indeed among these people, right? That God testified concerning Jesus through miracles, right? That he was sent from God, that he was from God and his words were truthful. He was confirmed in this way. And in the same way, they have seen and tasted of the powers of the age to come. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, which shows us then that the age to come will be brought about and will be confirmed and established through the power of God. And it is specifically the power of the Holy Spirit that will bring that about. He is the one who is at work, just as he was the one there hovering over the face of the deep, and bringing into existence those things that God spoke into existence, the power of the Holy Spirit. So he is the one who will bring in the age to come. He will transform this world, and he is the one who will resurrect our bodies and give to us our immortal bodies. And this power is already seen in the church of Jesus Christ, in the body of believers, in his work among us. We have a foretaste of the full power of the age to come. Acts 2, 14 to 21. Here, Peter says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be that in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here, 
the powers of the age to come are being seen in what is happening on the day of Pentecost. The crowds, the people, are assuming, associating that this, what is happening is being ascribed to drunkenness. But Peter is showing them that this isn't the case at all, but rather this is the power of the Holy Spirit that you see at work. And this power is still present in the church of Jesus Christ in every age, in every generation. Wherever there is a true church, wherever there are true believers, this, they are there because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will one day raise all of God's children to immortal, eternal life. Here, these people who have left them, who have turned away from the faith, they have seen these powers with their own eyes. They have seen the miracles performed by the apostles. They have heard these men speaking in tongues. They have seen the change in the life of these people, the holiness there in the body of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit that are being produced, and the gifts of the Spirit that are being poured out there among the people. All of this evidence is right before them right before their very eyes. We remember it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Who raised Christ from the dead? The Holy Spirit of God. And who will raise us from the dead one day? The Holy Spirit of God. This is the power of the age to come. So here then we have this description of these people, men who have seen and experienced the many blessings, the many privileges of the Holy Spirit at work among the people of God, men who have made a profession of faith in Christ, men who have been baptized into the church, who have continued and walked and come in and out among them, who have had their share in the ministry there amongst the church, who have experienced all the power, the goodness, have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that God is truly among this people. So we're not talking about an eight-year-old who comes to vacation Bible school, who says some prayer, and then never comes back to church, and we never see him again. That's not a comparison to what is going on here. We're not talking about the teenager that goes to Falls Creek, makes a profession of faith in Christ, comes back and is at church for two weeks, and then disappears and we never see him again. That's not the level of apostasy of sin, though in a sense these have walked away or turned away, but they have not turned away in this sense, right? This is a very grave, a very serious, a very high form of apostasy that these men have committed. They have heard the true gospel. They have made a credible profession of faith. They have some understanding of these doctrines, of these truths. They have attached themselves to the church for a period of time. They have experienced the many blessings and privileges of the Spirit of God. They have seen His power and operations among men. And like Judas, who Peter says was counted among us and had his share in this ministry, the Spirit is even working in these men in some measure. And then what happens? Well, notice verse 6. Hebrews 6.6. 6 and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Then they have fallen away. 
Now, here, we have to ask, what does it mean for one to fall away? What is this falling away that they have committed, right? What is it and what is it not? We must understand what he's describing because we don't want to misapply this to people that it's not true of, right? Because what he says is that they're under condemnation, that they cannot be renewed again to repentance. And if we become convinced that someone has committed this and we apply this to them, then we're not praying for them. We're not laboring for them. We're not pleading with them. We're not loving them the way that we properly should. So we have to understand who's he talking about? Who's he not talking about? What does it mean for them to commit this sin of falling away? Well, what it doesn't mean and then what it does mean. Fall away. It cannot mean that someone has committed an actual sin. That anytime we commit a sin, then we have fallen away to this measure and to this degree. Because if that's what it means, then what would be true of all of us? We would all fall away and we'd all be going to hell because we could not be renewed again to repentance. And there is that interpretation that has existed in the history of the church. Even in the early days of the church, there was the belief that if you committed sin after your baptism, then it was unforgivable. It was an unpardonable sin. And so there was for a time a practice of delaying baptism until your deathbed. (laughs) People weren't baptized till they were about to die because they were afraid that if they sinned, then they could not be forgiven. But that can't be what he is talking about. It cannot mean the committing of some actual sin, even a great and a scandalous actual sin. For David committed adultery, he committed murder, and he sought to cover it up in a very high way. He committed a very great and a scandalous sin. Solomon, he had many foreign wives, contrary to the clear commandment of God. And he even participated and assisted these foreign wives in worshiping their false gods by building high places for them, detestable things that became a stumbling block to the children of Israel. Peter denied our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ three times at his moment of greatest need, when he needed his disciples supporting him, encouraging him, building him up, praying for him. Peter adds sorrow upon sorrow to our Lord by denying him three times. Moses and Aaron struck the rock in anger, and they dishonored the Lord. They did not uphold him as holy when they did such a thing, when they struck the the rock in anger, and they were prohibited from entering into the promised land. Aaron also participated in the making of the golden calf. He did not restrain the people. He assisted them in the making of the golden calf and also in the worship of that golden calf. The men addressed by Peter in Acts chapter 2 were some of those who participated in the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the very least, they gave their approval of this, And is that not a high, gross sin? Yet in all of these cases, all of these examples of gross sin that was committed, none of these rose to the level of what these men are doing. None of these sins were an eternal sin for which there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness, there is no hope of pardon. Because in all these cases, David, Solomon, Peter, Moses, Aaron, the men there addressed by Peter on the day of Pentecost, 
all of them were renewed by repentance. All of them were true believers, true children of God, who had the hope of eternal life. Yet here, this falling away of Hebrews 6 verse 6 says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. The sin that David committed, was it impossible for him to be renewed again to repentance? No, because what did he do? He repented. What about Peter's sin? Was it impossible for him to be renewed again to repentance? No, because what did he do? He repented. The men of Pentecost, was it impossible though they participated in the crucifixion of Christ? No. Peter preached the gospel to them and called them to repent and to put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And many of them believed and were added to that number, and they received the forgiveness of sin. So it cannot mean the committing of of some actual sin. Otherwise, we would all be cut off from any hope. We would all be in despair. We'd be wallowing around in misery and pity all the day because we would have no hope of eternal life. We should go eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die and go to hell, so we might as well enjoy ourselves now. Also, it cannot mean that one has some confusion, some doubt, or even a falling away from sound doctrine, even principles that are essential to the Christian faith. The church in Corinth had doubts, and some of them were even saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some among them, among the Corinthians, were saying what? That there is no resurrection of the dead which is a gross error. This is a gross doctrinal error. It's not good, right? So we're not saying that it's fine and you just believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter what we deny or what we we say. Of course, that's not the case. But in that letter, does Paul curse them? Does he say you've committed the unpardonable sin? Does he damn them to hell and say there is no hope of forgiveness for you? Does he shake the dust off his feet and say, I'm done with you? I'm never going to minister among you again. He doesn't do that at all. Now, he corrects them. The whole point of chapter 15 is him correcting their false doctrine, but he still considers them believers, though they have had this lapse in faith, in doctrine, in what was sound. Also, the Galatian church, the Galatian church, they had their doubts, their confusion, their temporary falling away, from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Is that an important doctrine? Is it an essential doctrine? Is it one that we must believe and understand? And yet, there, they were being seduced by false teachers to at least be inconsistent with this teaching of justification by faith because they were admitting law-keeping into their salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then... 
Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Here, he is clearly confronting them. He's addressing their error. He's correcting them and rebuking them for their foolishness, for their being bewitched and seduced by these false teachers. But he still considers them believers. He still considers them brothers at this time. He does not apply this label of eternal sin, unpardonable sin, unforgivable sin to the Galatian Christians. They are erring believers who need to be corrected. Now, if they persist in this, if they continue to in this, then they would be approaching that level of sin, that kind of sin. But at this sense, though they have had a falling away of sound doctrine, the apostle does not consider them to be reprobates. He's still addressing them as brothers, as Christians, as believers, as those who are erring, who need to be corrected, who need to repent, but he still considers them and holds them in this regard. Now, the point of this is this. Both the men mentioned who committed great sins and the churches who had a lapse in sound doctrine. The point is not that we can be careless, cavalier in our approach to the Christian life, that we can just go and live however we want, and it doesn't matter, David committed adultery, I can commit adultery. Peter denied Christ, I can deny Christ, right? Uh, Solomon had many wives, I can have many wives. Not that you should do that. It's illegal, right? It's illegal. We shouldn't even be doing that. That's not what, it's, what the point is. The point is not that it doesn't matter what we do, and it doesn't matter what we believe. They deny the resurrection, we can deny the resurrection, right? They are denying justification by faith. We can include in the body of Christ and under the canopy of, of orthodoxy anyone in any variety of Christian, no matter how cultic and how false their doctrine is. Of course, that is not the point that we are making. The presence of any of these sins and the presence of any unbelief or false doctrine should be very concerning to us. It is not a good sign, right? It's not a sign of healthy Christianity, of sound Christianity, of godliness. It is a contradiction of the gospel, and it is a contradiction of our faith. The presence of any of these sins should be great cause for concern, both in our own Christian life and in the church. It could be that we have believed in vain. It could be that we are apostates if we continue in this course of sinning. The point is, though, is that there is no sin that one may fall into occasionally in a moment of weakness due to the power of temptation, due to the seduction of the devil, that brings the sinner under this kind of condemnation so that it is impossible for him to be renewed to repentance. Right? If we sin, even if we commit a great sin, we should repent of that sin. And if we truly repent of that sin, what will we always find to be true of God? That he is gracious, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he will pardon us and forgive us and wash us clean of all of our sins. He will forgive us. We should not conclude that we have committed the sin leading to death and that we can't repent and that our condition is hopeless. Yet there are Christians through the years who have been tormented in their mind and conscience that they have committed the unpardonable sin. 
and that there is no hope for them, that there is no salvation, that there is no forgiveness of sins. But here, the ones who are doing this, they have no, they're not bothered at all by their sin. They have no conviction over their sin. They have no sorrow over their sin, right? They are hard-hearted in this sin. And though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. The righteous will fall seven times, but what will he always do? By the power of God, by the grace of God, he will rise again. So then, this falling away must be a complete repudiation of Christ, a renouncing of the doctrines and principles of the Christian religion, a total, complete renouncing of Christ, such as those being described here, who for a moment confessed that Jesus is the Christ. But then they are returning back to a Judaism that denies that Jesus is the Christ. And that was itself in opposition to Christ, to the gospel, and to the church. This is the falling away intended by the apostle. A complete, thorough, voluntary repudiation and apostasy from the gospel of Jesus Christ. A rejection of the faith, the rule, and obedience of the gospel. After a season in which one experienced all the blessings of this gospel as manifested in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, consider Judas Iscariot. He is the chief example of apostasy in the Bible. Judas had a profession of faith in Christ. During that three years that he was with Christ, that he was counted among the disciples, that he had his share in the ministry, he was not standing with the enemies of Christ. There were the enemies of Christ during that three year, the scribes and Pharisees. Was Judas standing with them? He was with the disciples. He was with the friends of Christ, with the followers of Christ. This is who he associated with. He heard the glorious doctrines of the gospel preached by whose gracious mouth? By our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did he see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the ministry of Christ? He saw the healing of these people. He saw the raising of the dead of people. He saw all of this with his own eyes. Even Nicodemus in John chapter 3 says, We know that you are from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Judas had this conviction. He had this belief. He had this profession that God was with Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ promised by God and that he was among them and that he followed him and he confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Christ. When Peter made his great confession of Christ, did Judas stand up and rebuke him? Did he disagree with him? Did he say, well, I don't agree with that? Everyone else? No. And, and Peter is speaking for the rest of them. They're all affirming and agreeing that you are the Son of God, that you are indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what Judas was. He had this standing. He had this good standing there amongst the body, amongst the disciples, a place of esteem among the followers of Christ. Because there was a greater group of followers of Jesus Christ, and he was one of the twelve. And he had this share in the ministry. 
Now, for someone to have such a standing amongst the followers of Christ, and then for him to fall away like Judas, for in betraying Jesus, there must be in him a total, complete renouncing of his former profession of faith. Before he confessed that Jesus was the Christ. But now, when he betrays him, what is he professing? What is he outwardly, openly acknowledging? That he does not believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is no longer associating with his friends and his disciples, but now he stands with who? With his enemies, with the scribes, with the Pharisees, with those who are going to put him to death. For Judas to do what he did, there had to be a change, a denial, a rejection of Jesus as the Christ. For if Judas still believed that Jesus was the Christ, then he would not have betrayed him into the hands of his enemies. But that he did shows and proves he no longer believes his former profession of faith in Christ. Now for someone to do this, his heart has to be so black, so hard, so filled with wickedness and evil. Is it not a den of iniquity and evil, a cesspool of sin? For someone to be so hard-hearted to all of this evidence, to all of the gospel and the things of God, and then for him to repudiate and renounce everything that he formerly confessed and that he held to for three years, right? Not for a day or two, three years. He saw all of these things and then denied Christ. Those described are like Judas. They do what Judas did. Though Judas is chief among the apostates, in terms of the gravity of his apostasy is even greater than anyone else could ever commit because no one could do it in the way that Judas did. No one else could be a disciple that was with Jesus when he was on this earth. Yet the sin being described is like that of Judas, a complete, total, final denial and renouncing of Jesus Christ. And if we go back to 1 John chapter 2, this is what he's describing here as well. 1 John chapter 2, 18 to 24. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. Now he's going to describe who these Antichrists are. They went out from us, and they were not really of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so it would be shown that they all are not of us. When they were with us, what is one of the things necessary to be a part of the church, to be associated with the Christian church? Do you not have to make a profession of faith in Christ? That you own Jesus as your only master and Lord? That Jesus is the Christ? That he is the one provided by God? by which we can have our sins forgiven, by which we can be reconciled to God. Isn't that necessary? If someone comes and wants to become a member of the church, but they say, I don't believe Jesus is the Christ, then you should go somewhere else. You should go to the Mormon church, the Jehovah's Witness, go to some cult, become a Muslim, because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Every true church believes Jesus is the Christ. And there must be a profession and acknowledgement that this is indeed the case. And if they were among the church, then what kind of profession do they make? 
a credible profession, a good profession, right? Because they would not have admitted them into the body among them without them acknowledging and testifying that Jesus is the Christ. But then notice verse 19. They went out from us. Oh, we already read that. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now he's going to describe them. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Denying the Son here means denying that Jesus is who? That he is the Christ. That he is the one sent from God. That Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the promised Christ sent by God to reveal to us the will of God, to reconcile us to God. And the only way that we can be reconciled and present to God acceptable worship is through Jesus the Christ, through his mediation, through him serving as the great high priest over the household of God. When they were among them, they professed this. They confessed that Jesus was the Christ. But now they've gone out and they prove that they're antichrist. And what are they now saying? Jesus is not the Christ. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. They are the liars who deny Jesus is the Christ. So when they are among them, they confess it. But now they are denying it. They have renounced it. They have repudiated their former confession of faith in Christ. And this renouncing of Christ also assumes, it implies blasphemy of the Holy Spirit of God. Because when they were there amongst the church, and they tasted and experienced all of the power of the Holy Spirit that was evident and seen in the body of Christ, in the gospel, in the church, right in the new covenant, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit amongst the body of Christ. All of the privileges described in Hebrews 6, 4-5 have to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His power they clearly saw, His power they clearly experienced. But now they have renounced Christ. Now they have forsaken the body of Christ and they have returned again to the enemies of Christ. So what must they do, at least in their own mind, but also in their conversations, to explain away what they saw, what they experienced during their time there amongst the brothers. If it is from the Holy Spirit that these things are happening, but now they deny it, now they don't believe it's from the Spirit, who do they have to accredit it to? What are they going to say? Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. All of these are interconnected. Matthew 12 Verses 22 to 32. Matthew 12, 22. says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Son of David equals Christ. This man cannot be the Christ. Is this man the Christ? They're seeing the miracle, the power And they're rightly concluding, this man must be the Christ. Because how can he do these things unless God is with him? Unless he is indeed the promised Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, 
This man cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If by Beelzebub I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, do you, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Here in Matthew 12, you have clear, undeniable manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. For when Jesus healed this man, when he cast this demon out, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the opponents of Christ cannot deny the reality of the miracle. It's obvious. It's indisputable. The man did have a demon, and now he doesn't have a demon. Right? This is like in John chapter 9, the man born blind. It's obvious that something has happened. A miracle has occurred. So they cannot deny that a miracle has been performed, but they don't want to conclude that Jesus is the Christ. So they have to justify some way of making sense of what happened. Where did this come from? How did this miracle occur? Where did this power come from? And so they ascribe the power of the Spirit to who? To the devil, right? To Satan. This is how blind, how hard-hearted they are. And in this, they are committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by attributing His power and His work to the devil. And in the same way, when a man renounces Christ... When he forsakes his faith and falls away, he must ascribe all that he experienced and all that he saw during the time that he was with the brethren to some evil spirit, some evil principle that is there at work among them. They're a cult. They're idolaters. They're demon-possessed. This is how these things are happening among them. But this is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. And when one rises to this level, when one has this course of sin, this practice of sin that is being described in Hebrews chapter 6, one who converts from Judaism to Christianity, from Islam to Christianity, from Hinduism to Christianity, from paganism to Christianity, from atheism to Christianity, experiences the blessings of the body of Christ, the blessings of the gospel state, the blessings of the new covenant, sees the work of the Spirit, and then later renounces his Christian profession and returns back to Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or paganism or atheism in his persuasion and his practice. One such person has fallen away from the faith. This is what is being described in Hebrews chapter 6. And with such a person, it says, it is impossible 
to renew him again to repentance. He doesn't mean that God lacks the power, that this sin is so great that God doesn't have the power to forgive it. Because God can forgive anything. And God can, if he wants to, raise up children of Abraham from stones. He can do such a thing. Nor does he mean that God is unwilling to forgive. As if these men want to repent, they're sincere in their repentance, and yet God will not allow it. He means here that there comes a point in time when one persists in sin, when his heart becomes so hardened, so calloused by his sin, that it is clear evidence that God has given this man over to his sin, to reprobation, to condemnation. Any other sin, we should seek their repentance. We should seek the repentance of the brother. But in this sin, there is no means given by God to the church to renew such a person to repentance. But instead, God has given them over to a reprobate mind. In any other case, we should work diligently to bring them out of their sin by prayers, by fasting, by pleading with them, by loving them in whatever way that we can. But when one commits this sin, there's nothing that we can do. There is no means granted by God for us to renew them to repentance because their heart is so hardened that they are beyond redemption. They are beyond it in the sense that God has given them over and it is clear evidence that they are reprobate and that God is going to curse them in the end. This would be 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, the sin leading to death. The sin leading to death. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. There is sin not leading to death, and if someone is committing a sin not leading to death, what should we do for them? We should pray for them. We should ask God to grant them repentance. But if one is committing the sin leading to death, he says what? You should not request God to do so, right? At that point, you just give them over to the Lord according to his will. Now, in this, we must be very, very careful. We must be very careful in our, in our application of this truth. For it is seldom the case. It is very rare that someone commits this sin that rises to this level of gravity, to this level of grossness in what they're doing against God. And as God is rich in mercy, and as God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as God is kind, he calls us to be merciful according to his own example of mercy. So we ought not to rashly conclude that anyone has brought himself under the judgment of eternal death, but rather we should love one another, right? Love should teach us to hope and to pray for their well-being until there is sufficient evidence of one's apostasy. We should not conclude within a day or two or a 10-day period of time that someone has committed apostasy, that they're cursed, and pronounce a curse and judgment upon them that they are going to hell. 
That is to do so very rashly, and it's contrary to the commandment of God and the love of God and the desire to hope for men's repentance. This is a course of sin when it becomes obvious and plain, as if God himself pointing with his own finger to this person that this man has committed this sin leading to death. And yet, the severity of men is such that often, at the first sign of stumbling, we are ready to pronounce eternal judgment and eternal curses and condemnations upon our brothers. But we should not do so. We should not be hasty to pronounce such a curse and to pronounce and conclude that one has committed such a sin. Now, in wrapping up, in terms of our own application, this is being written for our benefit. Right? He's not writing for the benefit of the ones who have committed this because they're impossible to be renewed to repentance. But who is he writing it for? He's writing it for the believers. He's writing it for the Hebrew Christians, and he's writing it for us, for our salvation, for our perseverance in the faith. He's warning us of the danger of falling away so that it will not be true of us. And we remember what spurred him on to this, right? What is it that brought this subject to the forefront of his mind? It was the dullness in the hearing of the people. Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. This sin of dullness of hearing, if it gains a foothold, if one persists in this sin, he can become so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He can grow so cold in his love for Christ that he would fall away, that he would walk away from the faith and renounce and abandon Christ. So when this evil root of sin begins to produce its poisonous fruit in us, what should we do? Crucify it, right? Mortify, put to death the deeds of the body. Be renewed by repentance toward God. When any sin gains a footing in our life, when it becomes, begins to become a course of our life, we are in grave danger. Because the longer we persist in sin... The harder our heart becomes, the more callous we become to it, and the more difficult it is for us to be renewed to repentance. So at the first sign of sin, it is when we first commit sin that we are most tender to it, that we're most sensitive to it. But as a man persists in that sin, he becomes harder, more calloused, and it becomes more difficult for him to be renewed to repentance. So we must cry out to God for mercy. For God to give grace and help in our time of need. And we must be diligent to crucify sin and to cultivate the grace of God within us. And this is what he desires here for the Hebrew Christians. He says in verse 11, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't be sluggish. Instead, be diligent. Be diligent so that you might inherit the promises. And this is what we are called to as well. To be diligent to God. Do not be dull of hearing. Whenever there is sin, repent of that sin and press on to the kingdom of God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given to us today. And Lord, we do pray that the word would fall upon good soil. Lord, that in our hearts, Lord, those areas of unbelief, Lord, those areas of hardness, those areas that are not good soil, Lord, we pray that you remove those things from us so that our life more and more is receiving and conforming to everything we find there in the word of Christ. Lord, we see how dangerous it is to persist in any sin. That, Lord, when it gains a foothold in our life, there becomes a hardness, an obstinance, Lord, a callousness that has led many over the years to fall away from the faith, to renounce and to deny our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't want this to be true of us. Lord, we want to maintain and hold fast to our confession, firm to the end. Lord, even if we are subject to persecution, Lord, even to torment or to death, Lord, we want to have such conviction, such a firm grasp upon our profession of faith that, Lord, even in the face of death, that we would not deny Christ. We would not repudiate and renounce him. Lord, and join in in the ranks of those who are your enemies, those who are the children of the devil. But, Lord, we have little strength. Lord, our, the spirit within us is so willing, but our flesh, Lord, it is so weak. And we know that there's nothing good that dwells within us that is in our flesh. And that if you left us to our own devices, Lord, if ever it was the case that one of your sheep could fall away, Lord, we know that we would all fall, Lord, many, many times each and every day. The only way that we can endure and persevere to the end is if you uphold us by your mighty power. And Lord, we thank you that you have all power. Lord, that there is nothing impossible for you. Lord, we know this to be true because you're the one that brought us up from the dead. Lord, you did a miracle in our life at our conversion when you regenerated us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that that power that was at work within us to renew us and to bring us out from the dead, to give to us life, to change our dead heart and to give us a living heart that produced within us faith and repentance at the very beginning. Lord, we pray that that power would continue to work within us. Lord, in even greater measure throughout the course of our Christian life in that, Lord, we would endure and be faithful and persevere until the very end. So, Lord, grant to us perseverance and endurance. Lord, diligence in our faith. Lord, whatever we see of sluggishness, Lord, whatever we see of sin that so easily entangles us, Lord, we pray that you give to us the conviction, the faith, Lord, the strength to cast it off and to press on until we reach our heavenly calling. So, Lord, may you preserve each and every one of us. And, Lord, we pray that everyone here today, Lord, would be safely brought into your heavenly kingdom. And that, Lord, you might uphold us by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit who is working among us. So, Lord, bless us today. Lord, grant to us all that you require. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.